Acts chapter 7 tonight as we return to our series through the book of Acts. This is the chapter where Stephen responds to the council, the charges that they have brought against him of blasphemy against Moses and the law, the temple, and God. We've already considered Stephen's response where he makes it clear by quoting Scripture that he was not blaspheming anyone or anything, but he was actually staying true to the Word of God. And he began with Abraham to show how salvation would not come through Moses. Amen. It would not come through the law. It would not come through the sacrificial system of the temple. But salvation would come through the promised seed of God, Jesus the Christ. The one who Moses foretold of. The one who the prophets foretold of. The one that the temple system pictured. That's where salvation will come from. Stephen is showing here how how true Christianity is not contrary to the Old Testament, but that the Scriptures were pointing to Christ all along. And that God's Word, it finds fulfillment in Jesus. And he's showing them that this sect of the Nazarenes, as they were called, is not some cult. We're not some breakaway cult of, of Judaism and, and now we're this, these rebels. No, we're Christians. We're, it, it, listen, if, if Abraham was here, he'd be a Christian. If Moses was here, he'd be a Christian. If the prophets were, you see, and he's showing them, no, we're just, we're just in step with who they were and we're actually following the one they said would come. And so, really, the point is, the children of Israel should have naturally embraced Jesus as their Messiah. He also showed how overall the children of Israel never submitted to God. He points out in his his response here in chapter 7, you took Joseph and you sold him. You turned against Moses and in your heart you returned back to Egypt. He reminds them that you failed at Mount Sinai. And they failed in the wilderness. And I'm not saying we would have done any better. But they failed in the wilderness. They rejected the law of God. They corrupted the house of God. They persecuted the prophets of God. They had the land. They had the law. They had the temple. But what good did it do them in the end? He lets them know how God sent them deliverers, and yet they hated them. You didn't want Joseph. You didn't want Moses. You didn't want the prophets. And you're just like your fathers. And he goes there. He says, you're stiff-necked and you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You resist the Holy Ghost just like your fathers did. And so he's not trying to win friends and influence people here. Moses and the prophets told you of the coming of the just one, your Messiah. But what did you do with Christ? You betrayed Him and you murdered Him. God gave you the living Word, but you never kept it. The reason you don't like Jesus is because you don't like God. And you don't like His Word. And tonight, we're going to see their response. And of course, after hearing such a convincing sermon by Stephen, surely we're about to see revival break out. This is a man full of the Holy Ghost. And, And surely now, they're going to finally repent, embrace Jesus as the true Messiah being sent from God. 
Well, let's read this. Let's back up to 51, verse 51, to get a little bit of context here. As he concludes his response, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. And here they go. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Just want to make a quick observation here. And and maybe you have to be a preacher to fully appreciate what I'm trying to say. But isn't it interesting how we have been taught that spirit-filled preaching leads to the conversion of sinners? And if you're not seeing results, then you're not spirit-filled. And, and believe me, I'm not downplaying the need to be spirit-filled. We ought to be as God's children. And I'm not down, downplaying this whatsoever. But when we look at the response by these who heard Stephen's spirit-filled preaching we see that they don't receive Christ. They utterly reject Christ. And they kill God's man. The the reality is, spirit-filled preaching doesn't always lead to sinners being converted. And, And I bring this up because we are sometimes led to believe that if we aren't seeing people saved when we present the gospel, then we somehow have failed. And there must be a problem with us. And this is why I didn't ask today, did you see anybody get saved? I'm not interested, I'm interested, but that's not our emphasis. If that happens, wonderful, praise God. But the fact of the matter is, people can be stubborn. They can be hard-hearted. And they can reject Christ no matter how great the Lord has presented to them. And and we need to be careful about results-filled gospel presentations because... It can lead to pride when someone over here is seeing people come to Christ, but others over here are not. Well, I must be doing something wrong. I need to be more like them. No, you just need to be like Christ. And and all I'm saying is, as we distribute, and I had no idea we were doing this this afternoon, but as we distribute the gospel in our area, as we present Christ, let's not be focused on the outward results. Let's keep our focus on being obedient to fulfill the Great Commission. Why do we fulfill the Great Commission? Because that's what God said to do. Not to have all these great results, which I pray that we do. But we're doing it because God said to do it. And we just want to be obedient to His Word. Once results become the standard of success, we're getting into the flesh. And what we'll do is we'll end up comparing amongst ourselves with the, which the Apostle Paul said is not wise. 
And what church members can do is they can say, well, look what's happening over there. I've seen a move like across the nation because of what is perceived to be happening over there. And it's very fleshly is what ends up happening. And so we've got to be careful about not comparing ourselves. In some circles, Stephen would be considered a failure. Hey, Noah would have been a a disaster. Can you imagine him reporting to the mission board? And he's probably thinking, well, you're going to drown in a little bit anyway, so have your opinion if you want it. But um, (laughs) it's going to be a little bit of rain. And he didn't have great results. And, and people get the idea that if, if they're not seeing great results, then they're not right. There's something wrong. There's, there must be sin in the heart. There must be sin in the camp. There must not be spirit-filled preaching. We don't know any of that. I'm just provoking thought. I hope that's okay. And, and the reason I bring this up is I don't want anyone to become discouraged when we put forth all this effort. Listen, these guys are... And, and I know it's been a collection of people. We have Saturation Saturdays as well. And I'm thankful for everybody that can come out and do that. But listen, it's, it's not that we're looking to see results in the sense that I'm being obedient so that I can get this great harvest. I don't, I don't want people to get to the point of saying, what's the use? Why are we saturating the city? Why are we door knocking? Why are we giving to missions? Why are we doing all these things when there's empty seats here tonight? It, it obviously isn't working. Listen, when I was here the first time around, I, I think we saturated the city twice during my time here. And, and I could count on one hand the amount of people that showed up out of all those efforts. They never joined. So why do we do it? God said to do it. Amen. And so we just need to stay with it. And I want you to understand that most people do not receive Christ the first time around anyway. I bet most of our testimonies in here tonight are, no, I didn't walk into church, hear the gospel, and then immediately receive it. There probably was a process there. And we just may be part of that process. God may allow us to see a harvest. He may not. But we're planting seeds and we're watering seeds and we're we're getting people a little bit closer to the cross as we go. So we just need to stay with it. So while spirit-filled preaching won't always lead to the conversion of sinners, here's where I think the focus is. Spirit-filled preaching will reach the heart. And, And that's what we see taking place here in our text. And I believe this is what we ultimately want. Notice the beginning of verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Stephen couldn't control their results. And and really, Stephen can't even reach into the heart, but the Spirit can, and that's where Spirit-filled preaching is effective, in that it gets to the heart. So make no mistake about it here. They heard the message loud and clear from Stephen, and it cut them to the heart. And what this means is they were cut into it. It literally means to be sawn asunder. The, The Holy Spirit figuratively cut them in pieces as the Word of God was preached from a Spirit-filled man. They were pierced in their heart. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful 
It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and to the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we've seen the council experience this reaction already in the book of Acts. We saw it in chapter 5. You may recall back then the apostles had been arrested and after Peter responded to the council, the Bible says that they were cut to their heart. And guess what? They wanted to kill the apostles back then. So this may not have produced the kind of results that we would want to see, that we would hope to see, but it did produce results nonetheless. And that's what I want you to understand when we're out there doing what we do. We may not see it, but results are taking place because the Spirit's at work through His Word. So having heard a clear presentation of the message yet again, they now have a decision to make. As we give the truth of God's Word, this is what I try to get people to understand, is we ought to bring them to a decision point. Not to force a a profession. It it may not even have to be, look, I don't even want to hear your answer. But we have to bring them to a, a decision point in our presentation of the gospel. We are calling them to repent. That's what Jesus said to go and do. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as He sent them out, He told them, you call people to repentance. And we're calling people to make a decision about Christ. Not about Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. By all means, invite them. But we are trying to get them to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Make a decision about Him. And so here they are again in our text. They're cut to the heart. And we see how they decided to respond. At the end of verse 41, they gnashed on him with their teeth. Which I believe in this context is a figure of speech to express how enraged they are at Stephen. They're mad at his message. They are fit to be tied. You've had those conversations, right? Maybe with a coworker, a friend, a family member. And as you give them the gospel, the ears start turning red. That, that vein in their neck starts to... It's like, dude, chill. But Christ said, I've come to bring a sword. And we just have to expect that there's going to be divisions about Christ. But we are trying to get people to that point of making a decision. And so I can imagine this group of men, this council... Who does this Grecian think he is telling us, telling us who are the spiritual authority in Jerusalem? Who is he to tell us what the Word of God says? And if you've witnessed any amount of time, you get those kind of responses. My pastor said, my church said, my this said. No, 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 what did God say? Well, who are you to tell me? You're just holier than thou. I love that one because I always say, yes, I am holier than you. I've been washed in the blood of Christ. And that just makes them even more fit to be tied. And and, and in the process, they show just how stiff-necked they are. They show how Stephen's right. You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. And they show they are in fact resisting the Holy Ghost, just as Stephen said they would, or 
their fathers had done, I should say. And during their diaper baby tantrum, notice what is happening with Stephen in verses 55 and 56. Being full of the Holy Ghost, he looked up steadfastly into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Being full of the Holy Ghost, he looks above his persecutors. Amen. He looks above his situation, if you will. He fixes his eyes upon heaven. Stephen is not looking around to find an avenue of escape. But he looks to the one place where help can come from. And so what I'm saying is it's not like he's leaning unto his own understanding. He's looking heavenward because that's where help comes from. It comes from God. And so he's not trying to just get himself out of this situation, but he's, he's looking upward, and, and God certainly is making it clear here, your time has come. But he looks up to find help from God, and while God did not open up a way of escape from physical death, God does open up the way home. Whoop. <laughs> He was surrounded by the enemy, but the way home is open. And when the time arrives where you find yourself facing oppression, and I don't think any of us have been in this kind of situation in here, but let's just say when we face oppression, don't get so focused on the oppressors that you lose your focus of God. Lose your focus on God. Isaiah 51 verses 12 and 13 I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the Son of Man which shall be made as grass? And, and listen to what he says here about when you're afraid of people. It says, And forgettest the Lord thy Maker, that He hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and hast feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if He were ready to destroy. And, and Isaiah there, in the book of Isaiah, God is saying, look, when you get so focused on the oppression, on the persecution, on the trial, the tribulation, whatever, when you get focused on that, you can forget who I am. You can lose sight of me. And listen, I want to tell you tonight, don't forget God through the trials. Trials are going to come. Tribulations are going to come. Persecutions are going to come. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's coming. When that comes, you keep looking to God. Don't be afraid of man. But keep a healthy fear of God through it all. Looking upward, look Godward. And Stephen looks beyond his persecutors. He, he saw heaven opened. Can you imagine this scene? If you've been on the bedside of those dying, they, they oftentimes see something we're not seeing. It's amazing. He's seeing something they're not seeing. And he saw heaven open. He saw the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, and what this shows is that Jesus has been exalted. He, he didn't just die. No, He resurrected. He ascended. And He has been exalted on high. And He's been given a name above every name. And so, this is going to irritate them even more. He sees Jesus standing at the, the right hand of God. Jesus is exalted. And I don't want to take too much liberty here, but don't we get the sense that Jesus 
stands to welcome this man home. Well, Stephen had just glorified Jesus in life, and now God is calling him to glorify him in death. And so Christ was being magnified in his body, whether it were by life or by death. And guess who wrote those words? The man who's holding their clothes. (laughs) What a thought. Where did he get that from? Holy Spirit, of course, but we'll see this as we progress. Well, as you can imagine, Stephen's words and his actions, they're infuriating the council even more. As he claims to see the man, they put to death. He says he's alive and standing at the right hand of God, which the right hand of God is the place of prominence and power. They don't want to hear that Jesus is alive, that Jesus was the Son of Man. Because remember what Jesus said to the council when He was on trial in Matthew 26, 64. He said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, (laughs) coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, they know exactly what Stephen is what, what this reference is doing to them. He, they understand this. These are, these are similar to the words of Jesus when He was on trial by this same council. And so this enrages them even further. And so what do they do? Well, let's look at verse 57 through the first part of verse 58. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city and stoned him. So evidently they decided that he was in fact guilty of blasphemy. When Stephen said that he saw the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, they cried aloud with, um, with their voice, probably in an attempt to drown out their guilty conscience, in light of what we covered Wednesday night in the book of Daniel in chapter 5. I love how God's interweaving all this. They've got a guilty conscience, I'm sure. Ecclesiastes 9.17 says, The words of wise men are heard in quiet. So what do they do? They become loud. You want to know one of the problems in our society today is nobody ever gets quiet. We're always engaged. We're always on a phone. We're always on a TV. We're always on the Internet. We're always doing something. We're busy. We're loud. The words of the wise are heard in quiet. And they stopped their ears. And this pictures how obstinate they're being. You ever seen a little kid do this? These men, they're guilty of being willfully ignorant. What does that mean? They're being dumb on purpose. They refuse to hear Christ any longer. They refuse to tolerate Stephen. Psalm 58 verses 4 and 5 Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. Zechariah 7, verses 11 and 12, but they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their heart as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in His Spirit by the former prophets. And so they cry aloud. They stop their ears. They run upon Stephen with one accord, which is important to notice, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. They they cast him out of the city 
and they stone him to death. So this has escalated from threatening in chapter 4 to beatings in chapter 5 to a death in chapter 7. The enemy just keeps on. And in his martyrdom, Stephen obtained a good report through faith. And he joined the company of those of whom the world is not worthy. And in the second half of verse 58 we read, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. The witnesses most likely here are a reference to those who first brought the accusation against Stephen that he was a blasphemer. Because this is how the law was to be observed. In Deuteronomy 17.7 it says, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so shall thou put the evil away from among you. Leviticus 24.16, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. So the punishment for blasphemy under the law is death. And the witnesses are to cast the first stones against the guilty, and then all others join in. And it appears they're following the letter of the law. They're following it outwardly. But inwardly, they're, they're, they're wrong. They're not right with God. They're in sin. They're guilty. And look at who we find at Stephen's stoning, Saul of Tarsus. Which, if you're putting this together, and I mentioned this when we were there, Saul of Tarsus would have been present somewhere at the end of chapter 6. He either would have been part of the synagogue people who were disputing with Stephen, and he's hearing Stephen's reasoning, not able to resist it. Or he's part of the council, because he was a rising star in Judaism. He was a Pharisee, and he might just be there. But he's there. He's hearing this. He's seeing. And so from this account with Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul and greatly used by God, we, we learn with them laying their garments at his feet, Saul is very prominent here. And he plays a big role in the stoning of Stephen. He's one of the leaders of this which we'll see at the beginning of chapter 8. That's what he was called to do by the council. We'll get there at some point. But we, we see um, here tonight that he's some sort of a leader already. Now, I mentioned how it's important. We're told they ran upon Stephen with one accord. And I want to take just a moment tonight to briefly explain the importance of this event. This is very serious, what is taking place here biblically and for Israel in this moment. Keep in mind... They had seen the miracles of Jesus. And and Isaiah said, when when you see these things, it's the Messiah. They they had seen the miracles of Jesus. They had been given the sign of His resurrection. They had seen the boldness of the apostles who before were cowering in fear, but now after Jesus' resurrection, they're bold as a lion. They've watched as the church has now grown in the face of of opposition, all evidence is pointing to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and that He had arrived. And in this chapter, hey, listen, God is giving them one more chance on a national level. Get your heart right. We're meant to notice the significance of this event by how closely it's mirroring the events of Jesus' death. But still they refuse the message. And we see how intentional this was. They set up false witnesses. Not only that, they stopped their ears after they heard this clear presentation by Stephen. 
the witnesses are taking the time to take off their coats and lay it at the feet of Stephen so they're not encumbered with anything as they begin to cast stones at Stephen. What I'm telling you is what's taking place here is very purposeful. And, and don't get the idea, even though they're mad, that somehow this is just something that happened in a, a fit of rage. No, this is purposeful. They've been looking for an opportunity all the way back. We've, we've seen it since chapter 4. And, and so this is where I want to emphasize they ran upon Stephen in one accord. In essence, this trial was the final rejection of Christ for the nation. With one accord, one mind, one purpose, the leaders of the nation run upon Stephen and they reject Christ. And did you know that after the book of Acts, there's not another mention of the council? There's not another mention of the synagogue except for two mentions in the Revelation about the synagogue of Satan. Do not miss the significance of this event. It's more than just the martyr of a man. This is the downfall of a nation. With with this event will come the turning to the Gentiles. Israel has now fully rejected their Messiah. And God is now going to turn to a people who will receive Him. Deuteronomy 32, verses 20 and 21, it says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Romans 11.11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Speaking of Israel, Paul says, God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, to provoke Israel to jealousy. The times of the Gentiles here is being ushered in. It's starting. It's being played out here in our text as Israel rejects their Messiah And we'll see it play out now through the rest of the book of Acts. Here's just some snippets. Acts 3.46, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should have been spoken to you. Excuse me. Should first have been spoken to you. And and isn't that what we're told to the Jew first and also to the Greek? And, And Paul says, It was necessary it came to you first. But listen to what he says. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Acts 18, verses 5 and 6, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And at the close of this book, Acts 28, 28, it says, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. This is very significant. It's not that Israel can't be saved. In fact, many are being saved. In Jerusalem, we've already seen them saved by the thousands. Some are going to be saved as we continue. Saul's going to be one of them. But nationally, the attention turns to the Gentiles, the Gentile nations, and ultimately, the the nation that will provoke them to jealousy is the heavenly nation. Amen. 
When God says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to another, be careful and don't say he's giving it to the Gentiles. No, he's giving it to his children. Or else we Gentiles get puffed up. And what did Paul say over there in Romans 11? Be careful. If he cut off the natural branches, he can cut off the wild branches. Anyway, I can tell I'm, I'm getting too deep for some of you here tonight and I'm starting to lose you. Our, our text is, is more than them killing a man who didn't deserve to die, but in killing Stephen, they're killing their nation. And don't forget, Jesus foretold of the destruction of Jerusalem when He was still walking with them. It, it, it said in Luke, uh, he said in Luke 21, 24, "...and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations." And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Which, by the way, is still happening. I know, May 14th, 1948. No, there's, there's still Muslim places of worship on the Temple Mount. It is being overrun by the Gentiles as we speak. Their destruction would take place in 70 A.D., but the turning to the Gentiles is about to pl- take place as a result of this event here in chapter 7. And so I gave you all that to say, don't gloss over this event. Because as we come to chapter 8, we're going to start entering into this man's life called Saul. And how God's going to use him. And who's he going to be? The apostle to the Gentiles. Well, let's wrap up this chapter. In verse 59, as Stephen is being stoned to death, he calls upon God and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that's also reminiscent of our Lord's death, right? When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And in verse 60, Stephen gives himself uh, over to this death by kneeling down. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13, it says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. And then we see Stephen cries out, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And again, we're reminded of Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And after Stephen cried out, he died. After Jesus cried out, he gave up the ghost. A lot of similarities here, and we covered some of that at the end of chapter 6. And and don't you know that this event here had a great impact on this man, Saul? He, He doesn't come around right away. And I was saying that earlier. It takes time. We plant seed, we water it. He's he's getting there. In fact, when Jesus is going to show up to him on the road to Damascus, he said it's hard to kick against the pricks. His heart had been pricked. He had been dealing with this. And this event, no doubt, had a huge impact in his life as he saw this man die the way that he did, reminiscent of how Christ died on the cross. And and no doubt, Saul is starting to work this through his mind. And and we'll get to that in chapter 8. But just a couple things here I want to highlight. Remember, Stephen has just seen the heavens opened. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus on the right hand of God. And with Jesus ready to receive Stephen home, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, how can, how can Stephen get away with saying this? How is it that Stephen can be received? Don't, don't miss this. If I, if I lost you in some of that other stuff, listen. Stephen can say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit because Jesus had been rejected on the cross. Because Jesus had been rejected, you and I can be received. And so I at least want you to get that out of this. 
Jesus was rejected by God in paying our sin debt on the cross. Jesus was rejected by God as He became sin for us. And as a result, you and I do not have to be rejected by God. All we have to do is place our faith in Him. Remember, Jesus asked, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now Stephen doesn't have to ask that question. And if there's one thing I like about the words of Christ on the cross is that a lot of those are things you and I never have to say. Amen. Jesus said, I thirst. We don't have to say that. Not in Christ. Amen. Jesus went through it to be able to take care of us. And so Stephen now, he doesn't even have to ask the question, why have you forsaken me? No, he's received. He doesn't have to worry about being forsaken. Jesus had already been forsaken for his sins. He can be received into the presence of God on the merits of of Jesus. And so can we. And the final thought for tonight, I want you to notice how external circumstances do not stop Stephen's fellowship with his Lord. And I think this is critical as well. Outward persecutions are no excuse to backslide. Amen. Hey, let me put it this way. Circumstances are not an excuse to backslide. Oppression's not an excuse to get out of fellowship with God. Don't fall for the idea that when my situation gets better, then I will walk more closely with God. Once things ease up, then I can focus on my relationship with God again. Listen, we can have a close walk with God regardless of what's going on in our life. No matter the hardship, no matter the physical ailment, no matter what's going on, we are to stay in fellowship with our Lord because that's why He died. No matter what's going on, we should be walking with Him. That's how it ought to be. So I just want to tell you tonight, stay close to God always. And honestly, it's usually true that if you find yourself backsliding during the hard times, it's because you weren't walking with God during the good times. I hope you're not frequently finding yourself trying to draw near to God after the difficulties have come. You know what? Now would be a good time for me to draw near to the Lord. No, no, no. You should have been drawing near to the Lord all the while. You should have been preparing during the times of plenty. I hope you're drawing near while you can. Too many try running to God after the hard times arise. Instead of just continuing to walk with God into the hard times. You, you, you catching this? We're walking along in life and God is kind of an afterthought. Go to church when it's convenient. I don't know. I read my Bible if I get up early enough, whatever. Hard times come. Oh man, where's my Bible? Maybe I should go back to church. You see, we ought to, we ought to just be walking with God and then as we enter the trial, God's just right there. The fellowship never was broken. And we're able to walk with Him through it. Stephen was walking with God when he was selected to help the church at the beginning of chapter 6. He was already walking with God when he was chosen to help with the Grecian widows. He was walking with God in the middle of chapter 6 when he was out there preaching and performing miracles and wonders. And he just kept walking with God as he's standing before the council. And he just kept walking with God through the stoning. I'm not saying it's easy. 
God chose him for this for a reason. I, I, I don't know that I'd be as successful, you know what I'm saying? But, but listen, he just kept walking with God right through it all. And he just died walking with God. And that's how the transitions should be. They should be seamless. It should be seamless walking with God while it's good, walking with God while it's bad, and seamless as we just make the transition home. Of course, some of you are going to be shocked when you get to heaven, amen? You're going to be like, oh, I can pay attention. <laughs> Lord, help me. Nothing interrupted Stephen's fellowship with his Lord. Can that be said of you? So just keep walking with God through thick and thin. Walk with God on the mountains and through the valleys. Walk with God through the sunshine and the storms. You stay with God. Let's pray.